Welcome to the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center Equity Spotlight Podcast. This podcast series will feature the center's equity fellows, national scholars from North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio who are working to advance equitable practices within school systems. Each episode will focus on a topic relevant to ensuring equitable access and participation in quality education for historically marginalized students, specifically in the areas of race, sex, national origin and religion, and at the intersection of socioeconomic status. Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Our time is short, so I'm gonna dive right in. So my panelists today include a group of women who I consider near and dear to my heart. First, we have Dr. Courtney Malden, an assistant professor at Syracuse University and former teacher in Tennessee. Next, we have Dr. Lolita Tabron, um, an assistant professor at the University of Denver and mother of two smart, confident girls. Um, We're also joined by Jessica Brooks, a graduate of Carleton College um, and my former student from way back in the day. We're not going to talk about how far back. Um, Jessica has an MBA and she is an operations manager for a major international retailer. Um, and then last but certainly not least is uh, we have two high school students, Reagan and Sue, who are poised to take this world by storm. I'm so honored that they are making time to add their perspective to the mix. Okay, so just a quick recap of the racial opportunity cost framework for those who might not be familiar. Um, racial opportunity costs is a framework that can be utilized to identify the costs that high achieving students of color incur when they navigate white normed schools. Um, in the research paper, uh, the project that led to this work, that my research team and I um, interviewed high achieving African American and Latinx students, their experience um, in K-12 and college contexts. Um, we were interested in learning more about the costs that they incurred Um, as they work to achieve academic success in these racialized, dominant norm spaces. Um, In the schools these students attended, there were often expectations for how, quote unquote, smart students were supposed to dress, how they should speak, or how they should behave. Um, Despite what our intentions might be, we often conflate objective notions of success with subjective ones, like how a student appears or speaks. So one important contribution of this work is to look at the practices and policies at the school level that contribute to the racial opportunity costs that students experience. Um, So I'm going to stop there because I know we're going to get into more of the nuance with all of this as the conversation unfolds. Um, And actually, I want to start with a a question for Courtney. So Courtney, in this era of continued racial unrest, how do you see racial opportunity costs in relation to Black students, um, Black student lives mattering in schools? Yeah, so thank you for having me, Hatira. I would say that um, coming from the elementary context in particular, I think about how um, racial opportunity cause really speaks to what I think I witnessed a lot of my students and their parents have to navigate, particularly the parents. Um, thinking about while we were a pretty diverse school and spoke, I mean, diverse in terms of we had 30 languages represented in all of these cultures. Um, there were also some costs that I knew that students were incurred. For example, the fact that all of the teachers didn't look anything like them with the exception of maybe me and one other. And this is a a school with 1,600 students, right? And so uh, we had multiple grade levels um, per grade and just thinking about um, the realities that students weren't going to see themselves reflected. And I think that 
um, a lot of times what I also saw as a trend was kind of seeing how international fairs and things like that would happen and celebrate, you know, quote unquote culture, but there was nothing to necessarily celebrate or affirm blackness um, for a lot of mm -hmm. So it left a lot of my kids um, wanting to be other and, and not other in terms of just white, but other in terms of something else so that they could equally feel special. And I think that that was really hard to see. And so um, seeing that firsthand makes me think about why um, we have to affirm that their lives matter in multiple ways in the classroom and at that level, but also at a school level. And, um, and, and the district has to be taking some lead on that too and thinking about costs that students are gonna incur from elementary on up. I think that's really important, Courtney. Thank you for sharing that perspective. So I wanna shift to Lolita um, to pick up from a parent perspective. So how does racial opportunity cost shape your choices as both a mother and a professor who knows all of the statistical data on systemic racism and other forms of oppression in schools and policies? How do you make sense of all of this? Great question. So when I think about racial opportunity costs, I think about pay now or pay later, which takes me back to my K-12 experience. My parents worked hard and sacrificed greatly to make sure my sisters and I could attend good schools. For them at that time, a good school was a well-resourced school and all that typically accompanies a well-funded school. Excellent teachers, leadership, expansive curriculum, high test scores, positive academic reputation, et cetera. But we know from the research that you typically find schools that are well-funded and resourced where? in predominantly white communities and predominantly white schools. In these schools, I had access to great resources, but it came at a cost. That cost was that I did not receive a curriculum or pedagogy that was culturally responsive. I sat in classes where my teachers questioned my presence and ability. I did not see culturally and linguistically diverse leadership. What I realize now reflecting back was that I was accessing state-of-the-art resources all children deserve but I was also grappling with racism and picking up a weight and burden that I had to prove myself and my excellence. And when I did so, I was tokenized. So comparatively, take my husband who attended a predominantly black school in Gary, not well-funded or resource rich, but rich in other ways, rich in pride, culture, affirmation, high expectations, black excellence, rich in the intangibles, something you would never know or assume looking at traditional metrics. So fast forward, we both attend the same college. He feels behind in some of the coursework because he lacks material access, but it was nothing he wasn't able to learn and overcome. As for me, I started coursework in stride, but what I lost in K-12, I'm still fighting to get back to this day as a professor. That is freedom. And it's a release of this burden of proof and proving accumulated from years of offenses from my K-12 educators and frankly, what continues today in academic spaces. So you tell me who fared better. I guess you could say we both did because we're both college educated professionals. However, I wonder if I would have made different choices or how my path might have been different if I wasn't always on the defense or having to prove my value. He paid then, I'm still paying now. 
So for my two little girls, I don't define the quality of a school solely by test scores or the popular data dashboards out there. Frankly, traditional metrics like test scores, graduation rates, or any other state data measure doesn't capture the conversations you have to have with teachers or principals when your child comes home from school trying to process what they just experienced. So when I look at schools, my metrics for school quality are different. I look at and I look for knowledge and respect for the community that the school is a part of. And what is your investment in it? I look for their capacity to help nurture my baby's spirits while in their care. Successful schooling to me is when I send my daughters to school whole, they should come back that way, not broken, not questioning. I want them and the school to understand the value of who they are and what they bring to those spaces. My children, like other children, are value adds. So these outside entities need to start listening more to the parents. They need to listen to the communities, particularly the most vulnerable, the students. It's time to get with it. Well, I'm just really overwhelmed with what you just had to say, Lolita. I certainly, you know, resonate with that as a parent myself. Um, so thank you for sharing such a powerful perspective. Um, let me pick this up with Jessica. Um, I think you can shed some really important light on this topic, too. I want to ask you to reflect on your past experiences as a student. Um, I know that you had a particular experience moving away from your family when you were relatively young um, to live with a host family and attend a different school out of state. Looking back on that experience, how do you think um, this impacted your experiences with respect to this racial opportunity cost um, frame? Yes. Um, I, I reflect on it more and more. I think the, the older I get, I reflect on the differences that I see and who I am today and the people that I grew up with. So I left home when I was 12 years old for a better chance. This is the name of the program, but also for a better chance to go to college. And I moved into a house with 14 other girls from across the country in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. And coming from a predominantly black community and landing predominantly black and poor community, poor and working class, and landing in one of the wealthiest and whitest suburbs in America to go to, to high school. Um, I think that that had a, a sort of trauma that goes with it. And I think that was the first, um, I suppose, cost, if you may, to to pursuing higher education and pursuing adequate access to information, really. Um, but going to that high school um, and being kind of shocked by, by things that I didn't quite understand and, and um, learning what it meant to be the only person of color and how the, the assumption was that if you were a person of color and you were not in the ABC program um, and you ended up at Eden Prairie High School through some sort of busing situation in Minneapolis, um, you were immediately put into uh, special education classes. And regardless of how intelligent you are, you were immediately put into special ed classes. And if you were an ABC scholar, then it was like, oh, well, they're smart enough to be in regular classes. And you had to work even harder to get into AP classes and, and whatnot. 
So, so even in Eden Prairie High School, it was, um, there was some trade-offs and some, and almost feeling like um, you had to choose between the, the little bit of community that you had and what you were pursuing. And I, I remember uh, my senior year in high school, another person of color had approached me because I, or I, say, I should say BIPOC, I suppose, but another person approached me who had been in my step team. So I launched a step team at in high school just to bring some sort of culture and something that I connected to. And um, they thought that I was a teacher. So they saw my calculus book and they're like, wait a minute, you're in calculus? And I'm like, well, yeah. And then this whole time we thought you were a teacher because you're so serious and you don't talk to anybody and you, you know, <laughs> don't do anything. But it was because I had to choose. Like I had to choose what I was going to do. And I chose to just focus on trying to study and get the best grades that I could to get out of there and then get into college. And of course, I think that the experiences I had there, which I can't even begin to unpack from being used as a prop and a, and a history teacher's um, recreation of the integration of schools in Arkansas um, to, you know, uh, needing to explain what gang life was, even though I was not in a gang, and then getting to college and realizing that this was college in a time in which it was fun to have Crips and blood parties, right? Like we're going to dress up like what we think gangsters are. And um, I was better prepared to cope with that than I think my peers who ended up at Carleton through yet another um, program that was geared toward inner city students of color, low, low income students um, coming to the college as a cohort and not having already had four years of, I guess, that trauma of, going to a predominantly white high school and realizing that um, you do have to jump higher, run faster, work harder, and and that's still sometimes not enough. Ooh, I wish, you know, sometimes podcasts are great, but in this situation, I wish people could see the faces um, <laughs> of the panelists right now as we're hearing you share your story, Jessica. Thank you so much. Um, so our time is coming to a close, but I'm saving my secret weapon for last. Um, I think we've everything that we've discussed helped provide nuance to the racial opportunity cost frame, but I'm curious what current high school students have to say about um, the racial opportunity cost framework, especially in this current context um, of racial injustice um, and anti-Black racism. So we wanna close hearing from two young people who are actually navigating this time as students in high school. So Ray and Sue, we'd like you to share what you think about um, youth working together during this time. What do you think is your role? What about non-Black youth in schools who are also invested in racial justice work? What are your thoughts on all of this? Um, I think right now, especially during this time, it is really important to make sure that our POCs are connecting with each other, talking mm -hmm. to each other, creating support within a group, trying to do whatever that we can. Like for example, me and Regan um, have a few friends of color, mostly girls, and we are thinking of putting like a book club together where we will talk about social justice and racial justice, everything that we can do like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that our role right now is, I mean, especially- Like have I, a voice, yes. make sure that we're heard. Cause I feel like as kids even, um, we are overlooked just by adults in general, especially um, our school being primarily white with primarily 
white teachers. white teachers, except for my mom's the only black teacher in the school. Um, it's, I feel like we're very overlooked and we have a black student union, but um, it's, not strong. it's not very strong and it's not great and it needs, needs some help. Mm -hmm. um, and I just feel like it's overlooked and we have more of a voice. Mm -hmm. And I think in the classrooms, I mean, POC, I mean, as POC, we know a lot more information than we get in textbooks. So I think if we're in class not being afraid to speak our voice and say, well, you're missing this or you're missing that because there's so much more that we know that is put in our books. Our books are very much whitewashed. <laughs> I mean, you look at the authors. They're white, right? All of them. And it's it's kind of sad because, like, and, like, the kids in our school, they're, they're pretty white. I'm just going to be honest. It's pretty white. Yeah. And um, they don't know a lot because they hear what they hear from schools. They don't know. And that's a very, how she said, a very white um, example of it. And so they aren't, it's like they aren't hearing all of history from a non-biased respect, you yeah. know? Yeah. yeah, and then lastly, I think for non-black folk who want to get involved in racial justice, just really, really educating yourself, reading, um, looking at TikToks even too, because I'm telling you, there's you so much information. Mm -hmm. And talking to your friends of color, I feel like between young white folk and POC folk, it can be uncomfortable. Not being but, scared to talk about yes, it. Yes, but pushing yourself there mm -hmm. is only going to show that you want to learn and that you're there to support and that you want to be there to educate mm -hmm. yourself. So, yeah, that's what we have to say. Yeah. Absolutely. I think y'all, that's demonstrating exactly why I wanted to, to have you all go last so you could get us together. Um, and I just really want to thank all of you for sharing your perspectives today. When I originally conceived of this racial opportunity cross framing, I couldn't have anticipated how much people would resonate with this idea. Um, I think the, sh the stories that you all have shared really help fill in, fill in some gaps and fill out, flesh out the, the framework and give it life. Um, and so I, I just really want to thank you all for sharing um, your time tonight. I want to thank the Great Lakes Equity Center for supporting this work. And I want to send a particular thank you of all, you know, all of the panelists, but particularly to Courtney, who has been working behind the scenes and has really been instrumental in um, these GLEC products. So I appreciate you so much. Okay, dear listeners, um, thank you for joining us today. Make sure to check out the wealth of resources offered through the Great Lakes Equity Center. Um, thank you and good night. This podcast was brought to you by the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. To find out about other Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center podcasts and other resources, visit our website at www.greatlakesequity.org. To subscribe to a podcast, click on the podcast link located on the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center website. The Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center a project of the Great Lakes Equity Center at Indiana University is funded by the U.S. Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout the 13-state region. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education, S004D11002. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. 
This podcast and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for the use for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or in any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or by any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center.